from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program, featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, your liberty-loving Latino amigo, and it's my honor to be here with you. And I just want to make a quick announcement. Yesterday's program was the 100th episode of America at Night with Rich Valdez, so I want to thank each and every one of you that listen and support the show to um, for, for doing that, and a um, round of applause for you guys. Now, our phone number, if you want to join the conversation tonight, we'll be taking calls all throughout the, the first two hours. and the, the last hour of the program, we have some uh, special Memorial Day feature that I want to play for you. So we won't be doing calls in the third hour, but we will in the first two. The phone number is 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. Now, Janet Yellen, she's estimating that the government will run out of cash by June 5th unless we reach a debt ceiling agreement. Now, if you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, and for the last several months, she was saying by June 1st, June 1st, June 1st, June 1st, June 1st, right? Everybody heard that. Now, you're thinking, well, June 5th, not a big deal. Oh, it's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. And I'm going to explain right after you hear this report from Fox. Finance the operations of the federal government. Since January, I have highlighted to you the risk that Treasury would be unable to satisfy all of our obligations by early June if Congress did not raise or suspend the debt limit before that time. In my letters, I also noted that I would continue to update Congress as more information became available. It says, based on the most recent available data, we now estimate that Treasury will have insufficient resources to satisfy the government's obligations if Congress has not raised or suspended the debt limit by June 5th. Now, there's been a change, right? A little shift. She moved it back five days. It's a big deal, but I want you to listen to the rest of this letter that the reporter from Fox is um, reading for you. Yellen goes on to say in the letter that she says, we will make more than $130 billion of scheduled payments in the first two days of June, including payments to veterans and Social Security and Medicare recipients. Uh, she says these payments will leave Treasury with an extremely low level of resources. So it goes on to say during the week of June 5th, Treasury is scheduled to make an estimated $92 billion of payments and transfers, including a regularly scheduled quarterly adjustment that would result in an investment in the Social Security and Medicare trust funds of roughly $36 billion. Therefore, our projected resources would be inadequate to satisfy all of these obligations. All right, now, as much as they continue to fearmonger, and they love to fearmonger, I have been telling you that this fearmongering that they keep Social Security, Social Security, you know what happens on the third of every month in this country? Americans get their Social Security checks. 
So when they were clamoring that the debt ceiling, the debt limit, the whatever, whatever, June 1st, June 1st, June 1st, we're running out of money. All of a sudden, now they've got money to get to June 5th. And you know why? Because we've talked about it ad nauseum on this program. And I told you, they're not going to mess around with Social Security. They're not going to do it. They want you to think that Kevin McCarthy is going to steal your check, that Kevin McCarthy is going to take your Social Security check and go and spend it and and uh, do it with Trump, right? That's what they would love for you to think. But that's not the case. That's not the case, and she's proving it by moving it back. Even And they're still throwing in that little jab, saying, no, 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 you know what? Uh, we still don't have enough to get through. Yes, you do. You do, and they will. And they'll pay Social Security because the money is there. They, they want to make it look like it's not there, but it is there. And they do have a spending problem. And if they're spending on something other than the obligations that they have to America's seniors and those that are disabled, shame on them. But Kevin McCarthy delivered the deal that Congress approved, and it's the White House that's holding out. Now, yesterday, President Biden went on the record to just scare everybody a little bit more about Social Security. Listen to this. Speaker McCarthy and I have had several productive conversations and our staffs continue to meet as we speak, as a matter of fact, and they're making progress. I've made clear time and again defaulting on our national debt is not an option. The American people deserve to know that the Social Security payments will be there. The veterans hospital will remain open and that economic progress will be made and we're going to continue to make it. Default puts all that at risk. Congressional leaders understand that and they've all agreed there will be no default. And it's time for Congress to act now. Now, I want to be clear that the negotiations we're having with Speaker McCarthy is about the outlines of what the budget will look like, not about default. It's about competing visions for America. Under my administration, we've already cut the deficit by $1.7 trillion in our first two years. But Speaker McCarthy and I have a very different view of who should bear the burden of additional efforts to get our fiscal house in order. I don't believe the whole burden should fall on the backs of middle class and working class Americans. My House Republican friends disagree. Instead, Republicans passed a bill that would make huge cuts in important programs that millions of working and middle class Americans count on. Huge cuts in the number of teachers, police officers, border patrol agents, and increased wait times for Social Security claims. And I won't agree to that. And there he is again, throwing in that Social Security. That's the magic word to get everybody afraid. D- Listen, I, I'm, I don't collect Social Security, and uh, I don't want to tell anybody what to do. But I can tell you, if I was a betting man, and I'm really not, but if I was, I would bet against everything Biden's saying. They're going to pay Social Security because they're not willing to play. It's too risky, right? If you're a politician, there's a few things you don't do. You don't go after seniors. You don't go after kids. Right. Some stupid politicians have gone after the police and they've been successful. So, you know, it used to be you couldn't go after law enforcement. But now you can. That's on the table. Now, there might they may decide to go down this road where they decide, well, you know what, let's go after seniors and try to blame the Republicans. I think it's an incredibly risky proposition. And I think it blows up in their face if they try to, because saying that McCarthy's trying to give tax cuts to the rich by getting us back to pre-COVID spending where we're not spending these extra $6 trillion. And that's really what's happening here, right? They've gotten used to spending and spending and spending, and they're not, they don't want to go back to those pre pandemic uh, levels of spending. And that's, I think it's unacceptable. It's 
It's unsustainable. Anyway, that's my thought on that. So I just wanted to give you an update on that because as they continue to throw Social Security around, they're going to continue to pay it, uh, irrespective of whatever demagoguery they decide to spew. Now, I want you to also just, uh, and this is nothing related. This is a, a pivot here. But in New York, banking officials in New York are now freezing accounts. They're limiting deposits after a couple of banks didn't submit their anti-discrimination plans. And, and this is fascinating to me. So Capital One Bank and Key Bank are now uh, people can't deposit, right? Deposits are limited at Capital One and Key Bank after these institutions didn't submit the required anti-discrimination plan. So think about that. It wasn't based on whether they have the money to, to fulfill their, their fiduciary um, responsibility as a bank. Nope. This had to do with their diversity, equity, and inclusion plan that wasn't submitted to the state. So now their, their penalty is, is you can't deposit there. I mean, this is absolutely insane. This is the beginning of what people have been fearful of across the board with the whole digital currency, the central bank digital currency, where if they don't like what you're doing or the, what you're saying or whatever, they can they have the control to turn your, mo- your money on and off. Very bad. Very bad. This is what happens when radicals are able to live out their fantasies. Anyway, we're going to continue our conversation in, in particular on dating apps to discuss are dating apps creating an insensitivity towards people to actually have long and meaningful relationships? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But our next guest, Brenda Hafera, she might have an idea on that, and she's going to explain it to us. And uh, we're also going to talk about how that affects boys in particular. So don't go anywhere. Don't move a muscle. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. It's um, the eve of Memorial Day weekend as we head into this weekend. I want to discuss how dating apps might uh, be exacerbating the crisis around forming long-lasting relationships and the role that smartphones play in all of this and and how people, because of a, a, a digital situation, are unable to make a human connection or at least a meaningful human connection. And uh, our guest is going to walk us through this. Brenda Hafera, she's assistant director and senior policy analyst at the B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Brenda Hafera, welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So let's um, walk us through this, because I mean, I guess on its face, it makes a lot of sense that people... It makes sense to me. I'm a Gen Xer, right? I'm 45 years old. So if you tell me that dating apps are are getting in the way of people making these these meaningful and long lasting relationships, it would make sense to me. However, I think somebody that's younger would say I've only ever dated because I've used a dating app. So I think generation or age um, has something to do about that. What say you? 
Sure. I think that's true. Although I think if you ask a lot of the younger generations who have been using these dating apps, they're actually not very satisfied with them. There, there is a mixed mm-hmm. result. They're kind of frustrated, but ultimately they think this is the way things are done and they're not really sure how to go about it otherwise, because this is just common now. It's kind of changed the dating norms to the extent that women actually say they find it creepy if a man comes up to them in person and asks them on a date. And and the reverse, men are also kind of confused about what are the rules for this, especially after after Me Too, and there's heightened awareness about those sorts of things. But the dating apps don't really lead to long-term meaningful relationships, especially the applications that use location software. They're really encouraging a hookup culture and transient encounters rather mm-hmm. than long-term meaningful relationships. So how do we get around that? And is is that here to stay, in your opinion? Is that something that we have to work through? Um, I'm, I'm, I don't know the answer. I, I don't think we've worked through an answer yet. I think it is it is something that, especially now with things like religious institutions declining, some of the ways that people would traditionally meet are no longer available to these upcoming generations. If, if you met through family and friends, that is a better way because you know there's some sort of social cachet to that. You are familiar with another person's background. So that's still the better way to do this. But dating apps are kind of how things are done. I think one of the things is just to be aware of how these platforms work and know that it's there are bugs to the system. So for example, about 63% of users are men. And so what that means for the men is they're probably not getting a lot of matches. A lot of these platforms, they prioritize the people who get likes and those are the profiles that get sent out. And so a small group of men are probably getting a lot more attention. And then in the reverse, the women are experiencing kind of cognitive overload and feeling like they're being bombarded because they're way outnumbered by the men. So being aware of those things is helpful to people who do use online dating platforms. And what do you think is the, uh, the outcome of this? Uh, do we, obviously I think marriage has been on a, a decline. Um, I'm going to say pretty, pretty steady for several decades, I would, I would su- suppose. Um, it seems that way to me. Do, do we continue this trend? And does this uh, hookup culture you're talking about ultimately replace marriage? I don't think it will ultimately replace marriage. I think there is still an indication that a lot of people do want to get married. The problem is they're not sure how to meet somebody and how to form those long-term relationships. So there is some indication that people value marry less, marriage less. But I think much of it is just a frustration with these apps don't work well for young people, but they're not sure how to do it otherwise. And a lot of women are are saying there's that they're looking for somebody and they're just not finding somebody. 
And a lot of men are very frustrated because men have fallen behind. The, the boy crisis has been developing for quite some time. And one of the big reasons that men list that they're single is because they feel like they haven't achieved enough. So they're insecure huh. about being able to meet somebody and impress them. And then all of this is going on against the backdrop of generations who have grown up on social media that brings people out of the world. And so you don't develop the social skills that you would otherwise. And so a lot of people will say, well, I'm not good at flirting or I'm socially awkward. And these are people who have grown up in the age of social media where all of your interactions are not face-to-face. They're through an intermediary. And it really is damaging for social skills and increases anxiety and depression and a lot of those measurements. And again, I, 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 I see that. I see it happening and uh, when we look at things and we've had some some other um, guests on psychiatrists that indicate that some of the most recent school shooters all had in common that they were in cells. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I so I see this stuff kind of starting to spill over into a lot of parts of life. And it, it's not just a dating apps, but it seems to be a part of the culture that sadly seems like it's here to stay and ultimately looks like. Um, if, if we don't go back to like human connections, kind of like you mentioned, people meeting people at church or other types of uh, actual in-person events, uh, it seems like we're going to get more of that, no? I think that's a good point. And one of, one of the high correlations as well between school shooters and these, these boys who commit violence is um, not having a dad in the home. So that's, what has happened That's to young huge. boys in yeah, it's huge. What has happened to young boys in particular, them falling behind academically, the rates of suicide and anxiety rising, their lifespan is decreasing, their IQ is decreasing. And these measurements can the biggest driver behind them is not having a dad in the home. Forty percent of kids are now born out of wedlock and this has just been a disaster particularly for young men and it's it's been going on for quite some time and well brenda havera if you don't mind pausing right there we're going to come back and continue this discussion on the war on boys how uh, boys are paying the price for dads not being in the home don't go anywhere we're on with brenda havera from the heritage foundation and the topic the war on boys don't go anywhere 833-4-VALDES we'll be right back Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Valdez, who again will do a fine job, but I know you'll enjoy listening to it. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. 
All right, welcome back. We're on with Brenda Hafera from the Heritage Foundation discussing the war on boys. And Brenda Hafera, this war on boys, this um, this brunt that they bear for not having fathers in the home, you were just uh, sharing some stats with us, if you don't mind uh, teeing those up again, because I think they're important. Sure. So it's it's pretty disastrous. I mean, every many achievement measures in terms of educational attainment, in terms of job outlook, and boys are less likely to graduate with a high school diploma at the same time that education is more important in the world that we live in. They're more likely to be addicted to drugs, video games, opioids. They're more likely to die a death of despair, which is from drug overdose or suicide. Their life expectancy actually is decreasing, as is their IQ. And all these things can be traced to not having a father in the home with 40% of kids now being born out of wedlock. That's horrific. And, and, you know, it's evident. It's evident. Um, Not everything you mentioned is evident, but the lower IQs for sure is. And I just see that kind of across the board. I feel like there's, in addition to a a war on boys, I think there's a war on education in our country. Um, So let's, let's unravel that a little bit and, and talk about these boys, the, with respect to the boy crisis that we're discussing, what are some of the contributing factors that, you know, cause the absence of a father in the home? Well, I think there are multiple things. There's um, certainly the welfare state is a motivator where sometimes there is a dad in the home and and mom and dad are not married, which is a tenuous situation and and often breaks down at some point lower down the road. And it's also a problem of one of the things that can kind of offset not having a father figure is having another male role model who's a strong male role model to kind of take that place. And some of these boys are growing up in communities where there just aren't a lot of male role models because there's a problem with incarceration and with crime in those communities. And then they don't have a male teacher And now we've also undermined male-only spaces. We don't allow for, you know, like the Boy Scouts now have to admit girls and those sorts of things. And those those can help offset, doesn't totally replace not having a father in a home, but having those male role models can be helpful. Sure, as well as sports. A lot of uh, sports Mm -hmm. do the same thing. And and just it makes you think about the same way there's a war on boys there's a war on girls who can't participate in many sports without without boys you know jumping in on that sport folks we're on with Brenda Hafera from the Heritage Foundation and Brenda what would you say is the current um conversation around ending this boy crisis to to make things better for to create stronger families Right. So I think the conversation needs to be one, identifying what has gone wrong here. And unfortunately, it has happened at multiple levels. So there's the problem of a lack of fathers in the home, and that is the biggest driver and the worst problem. But then boys also go into our education system. And some of our policies are really 
detrimental to young young boys. The zero tolerance policies that we're dialing back on things like recess so boys aren't able to go outside and kind of take out that energy. We're telling young men that they're unnecessary and that all masculinity is toxic. And then boys are graduating and it appears that young men are not working. So Nicholas Eberstadt wrote a book, Men Without Work, revealing that men of prime working age, men in like their 20s, are not searching for jobs. They've checked out of the job market. And what they're doing is they're spending a lot of time on screens. So they're in front of smartphones and on YouTube and unfortunately probably watching a great deal of pornography. And so all of those are problems, not having fathers in the homes, screens and lack of work and the lower education system and all of those need solutions to be coupled with them for this crisis to start to recede. Now, you mentioned uh, the the time on screens and, and much of it uh, or some of it being pornography. And I was looking at the piece uh, in American Mind and uh, the, the figures are, you know, they're staggering that it's it's it seems that there's a whole lot of that. You know, I think there's a, a lot of people that that view pornography online, but it seems like there's like a subset of people that this is a like a full blown addiction. What's behind that? It is. Um, it's it's about a bell curve. And one of the things that is driving it is just that technology has gotten much better. So two of the technological shocks were the invention of the smartphone and YouTube. And what that means is essentially boys are carrying in their pocket a device that they can access high quality pornography at any time and it's anonymous and it's free and we're just in a culture where it's it's all over the place so a boy can go on his phone maybe not even be looking at it but then looking for it and he's a young boy and finds it and then gets addicted because the way that the brain works is there's it taps into the pleasure center and so it's it's enabled to do that and then it gets increasingly more perverse because the novelty aspect just keeps upping the ante until the point where, you know, these boys are addicted for 10, 15 years by the time they're adults and they don't have a very high self-control because no, no child does, their brain is not fully developed. So by the time they're looking for a real relationship and by the time they're an adult their brain has actually been rewired into desiring things that they shouldn't desire not desiring a real relationship with a real human being wow that's interesting i want to uh, tug on that thread a little bit as well as get the other side of the coin how this affects girls and women so, folks, we're on with Brenda Hafera from the Heritage Foundation. I'm looking at her piece in The American Mind, AmericanMind.org. Excellent piece. I'll share it so that you guys can uh, take a look at it on social media. I'll put it on Twitter. And we're coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez.
right, America, welcome back. It's Rich Valdez. Our guest is Brenda Hafera. She's from the Heritage Foundation. Of course, you're welcome to join the conversation. Give us a call, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. And Brenda Hafera, we were talking about uh, several things here, and I'm, I'm looking at the piece here and, and seeing how this um, this advent of, of the smartphone and how it's kind of uh, become such an integral part of so many people's lives. Um, it, it's really interesting, right? I looked at one of the things quoted here and talking about how uh, one family psychologist noted these recurring themes from women between the ages of 25 and 45, saying they prefer men who are emotionally available, who are good communicators and who share their values. And Conversely, those who've grown up with social media and smartphones can lack that social maturity, inhibiting their ability to form these real connections, which you mentioned. And I'm wondering, what is the the impact on women of not having this uh, inventory of men that, that they're looking for? Well, I think it's going to be disastrous for women as well. Um, they're going to struggle to find partners. And women are are suffering from their own issues when it comes to social media that really affects teenage girls in particular and their images of their bodies because they're constantly mm-hmm. comparing themselves to others and come, well, I should say a carefully curated version of another person that's not actually real. Right. And so women are struggling with that. But then I think part of the problem of finding someone to share their values is the the problem of pornography addiction and that really affecting women and when they're trying to find someone to have a relationship with and what's expected and how this other person has been damaged and that pornography addiction actually makes men more aggressive towards women and it normalizes certain behaviors that then women just find appalling and say, well, maybe I don't want this relationship. And especially the younger that they are, that it's bizarre behaviors that this relationship seems damaging and violent. And and then women think that that's normal and that's what normal men are like. And it gives them a false perception of what men are really like. Right. Because these men are, have created this, this, perception of of women or relationships or whatever that is pure sexual fantasy if they're living it through pornography and on the other side you've got women that are in the same boat just not with pornography but with this body insecurity because they're you know bombarded with this false image of what women should look like that's right and and we're seeing more and more of the data come out that teenage girls are suffering from anxiety and depression and they're at risk of suicide and one I think the problem with social media and these sorts of things is the content and the content showing them false images you know there's the term FOMO fear of missing out and that this is this constant thing and there's there's that it gives them false perception of the world but two all of these things take you out of the real world which in and of itself is very damaging because then you're not going to develop the social skills and the maturity that you need 
to deal with real world problems. There's there's constantly an intermediary, and I think it really lowers your ability to deal with problems in real life and to to actually respond to things in real time rather than to be able to constantly wait for an intermediary. Now, you also bring up the rates of obesity, in particular with, uh, I guess, teenage girls and women. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's it's across the board. The rates of obesity have been rising, of course, in the United States and probably in the Western world at, at large. And they are rising among young people. And it's not just girls, it's also boys. And, and part of that actually can be traced. Um, that's one of the measurements that increases if there's not a father in the home. Hmm. For both boys and girls. Mm-hmm. Wow, interesting. All right, Brenda Hafera uh, from Heritage, tell everybody how they could um, keep up to speed with uh, the work that you're doing on this topic and others and how they could follow you if you're online. Yes, I'm on heritage.org, and all my publications are there. Brenda Hafera, H-A-F-E-R-A. Outstanding. Well, I want to thank you for staying up late with us and sharing this uh, important information because it's, uh, it's, a, it's a difficult truth, right? It's stuff you start looking at these numbers, and it's like, man, really blows you away. So I'm, I'm grateful for the piece that you wrote, and um, I'm hopeful that you'll come back on and share more of this work with when you have it. Thank you for having me. It's it's not a, uplifting, but it is important, I think. Uh, I agree. Thank you, Brenda Hafera. Godspeed to you. Folks, we're going to continue with your calls and more straight ahead. 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America. Welcome back. And I wanted to um, just touch on something very quickly, which is this story about what happened on The View, right? The show that I'm pretty sure most of the people listening to this program don't watch The View, may never even watched, uh, have ever seen an episode. Uh, But in in modern day America, this is uh, uh, the piece I'm looking at here, they're it notes that appreciating the beauty of a woman and enjoying their activities is becoming increasingly difficult. Gone are the days of glamorous angel fashion shows and even Sports Illustrated is now featuring overweight women and even men on their swimsuit covers. And if you happen to desire the excitement of a lively lap dance, it appears that such entertainment is now limited to regime-sanctioned performers like Whoopi Goldberg. This is in uh, Revolver News. And uh, that's exactly what went down, pun intended, (laughs) recently on ABC's The View. The show transformed into a really creepy version of Girls Gone Wild 2023 as Whoopi surprised her co-host with a disturbing and unsightly lap dance all caught on camera. So during this um, segment of The View earlier this week, where the co-hosts were debating whether or not getting a lap dance at a bachelor party or a bachelorette party should be viewed by your 
significant other as cheating, Whoopi Goldberg took things a step further and actually gave Sonny Hostin a lap dance in the middle of the show. The segment was called Hot Topics, and it featured the hosts of the show debating a recent survey from BonusFinder.com that asked 6,000 men and women across the country whether or not they cheated during a bachelor or bachelorette party. The word cheating for the purposes of the survey was loosely defined as any type of naughty behavior. So the um, there, there's a video clip. I'm, I'm not going to play that for you because it's really just noise, but interesting on, on how that happens. And I think that's an interesting position, right? So if you get a lap dance at a bachelor party or a bachelorette party, does that make you a cheater? And I guess that also opens the question, if you get one on a weekend because you're out with your friends and you go, you go to a, that type of thing, uh, whether you're a guy or a girl, um, is that considered cheating? Or is that something that's only reserved for single men? Or, and according to the survey, it's only asking if it happened at a bachelor or bachelorette party. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious to know if anybody wants to weigh in on that. I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that. Is it cheating to get a lap dance? 833-482-5337. The interesting part of this, and in, in from what I can see, is that they did this on TV, and um, it's a talk show, right? I mean, I don't think you expect to see that. Maybe in a cooking segment, you see a little cooking. So when they do this hot topic segment, I guess they decided to get it a little uh, hot, if you will. I don't know if that's really it. But the um, the headline on this, maybe I'll share this on Twitter, too, because it was kind of funny. Whoopi Goldberg sends the view into Creepsville with an unexpected perversion caught on camera. I thought that was a pretty funny uh, headline there. So I'm curious to know your thoughts on that. I also want to discuss something that um, we talked about in the last segment about obesity. We're going to talk about obesity and how Americans are eating themselves to death and the effects of eating oneself to death on your cardiovascular system Um the cardiologist, Dr. David Wild, will be weighing in on that in a little bit. Plus, we're also going to have a discussion on, what else? Let me see here. Oh, yeah. What I've been talking about for a while. The fact that there's actually a campaign, a primary challenger to Joe Biden, that seems to get no attention, right? Nobody talks about RFK Jr., and I'm wondering why. Well, uh, RFK Jr.'s publisher from the books that he's written, uh, Tony Lyons from Skyhorse Publishing, he's going to be with us as well to discuss why the media is largely ignoring the campaign. And I think that's important because, I mean, he's literally a Kennedy. So we're going to get to that straight ahead as well. Plus your calls, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. Don't go anywhere. We're coming right back. The conversation continues. City that never sleeps. 
17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program, featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, your liberty-loving Latino amigo, and welcome to our late-night National Town Hall Forum. I believe this is probably the the only live uh, syndicated show in this time slot. It's my honor to be with you and um, all of our many listeners. Feel free to give us a call, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ is the phone number. And, uh, of course, the debt ceiling negotiations continue that that's uh i think that's going to go right down to the wire that's um that then you've got durham durham is going to testify to the house judiciary committee over his much anticipated report of course that was i think very told us what we knew but kind of confirmed those things and now it's uh, it's going to be up for grabs, right? So members of the Judiciary Committee are going to ask him questions and figure out what's what. And, you know, you know my take on this. I've always felt in, in my lifetime, this is just how it's been, right? Sadly, there's a double standard in many things. Um, you name it, there, there's a double standard there. So we'll, uh, we'll see how that plays out when it happens next week. And, uh, of course, I was talking about this earlier, and I think this is a big deal that you've got New York banking officials that have decided to uh, freeze accounts and limit deposits because two banks have uh, failed to submit their anti-discrimination plans. Uh, The two banks are Capital One and Key Bank, and now the city's issued mandates, which hold public funds uh, to specific steps to combat these different forms of discriminations in their operations. So because they've failed to do that, they're 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 not getting any uh, deposits. And then I think that's pretty crazy, but that's exactly where we are. So we'll, we'll get into that a little bit uh, later, perhaps. But I also wanted to draw your attention to the censorship that's in the media. Again, yet another double standard where some people get all the press in the world, i.e. Biden and and and, and quite frankly, Trump. Right. No, no matter what he does, they uh, they go after him. Uh, whether it's good or bad, it, it always ends up being bad in the media's eyes. And and there's this member of a dynastic political family, if you will, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's running for president, Kennedy24.com. He launched on April 19th. And the media seems to, you know, other than, a, you know, one ABC interview and, a, a little bit of coverage that day, you, you would think he's not even in the race. And it's not because he's running a lackluster campaign. It's because the media is drowning him out because they don't want that diversity of thought. So I want you to hear this clip from his announcement on April 19th. I've come here today to announce my candidacy for the Democratic nomination for president of the United States.
My mission over the next 18 months of this campaign and over my, throughout my presidency will be to end the corrupt merger of state and corporate power that is threatening now. is threatening now to impose a new kind of corporate feudalism on our country. Well, there you go. It sounds like a, as Kennedy as it comes, right? You had his uncle, JFK, who had spoken about destroying the FBI, breaking it into a thousand pieces. And here you have uh, RFK Jr. discussing same. And he, he's used to the censorship in the media because lamentably he, he'd written a book on his views on on COVID, and that was widely censored as well. And I want to get um, to the bottom of this with Tony Lyons. He's the publisher for RFK Jr. and that book and others. Tony Lyons from Skyhorse Publishing, welcome. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. You bet. So let's talk about some of the hurdles you guys have had to go through with respect to you know, getting drowned out by the media noise. Yeah. So, you know, when Robert F. Kennedy Jr. published his book with us, The Real Anthony Fauci, mm-hmm. it was the most censored book that I've ever been part of in 30 years of publishing books. And, you know, it was just an incredible array of tools that they used to try to shut it down from you know, newspapers like the New York Times not allowing us to place ads for it, knocking it down on the bestseller list. So in its first week, it was the best-selling book in America. And yet it was listed as number seven on the New York Times bestseller list. So they were, they were playing games, but they weren't willing to just totally take it off because they're really trying to confuse the public. And they're trying to make it look like they're honest when they're actually not. And they're trying to claim that people who they disagree with are, you know, spewing out misinformation. So words like misinformation or conspiracy theory or, you know, disinformation or domestic terrorists, you know, all of these kinds of things that they label people with are are just sort of weaponized to, get away from having to have real debate. So they just attack people. They have hit pieces and all kinds of newspapers and magazines and on radio shows and TV shows, you know, as a way to vilify somebody when they don't really have any counter argument other than that they dislike what the person's saying. We don't like you, so we'll destroy you. That seems to be the plan. Exactly. And it, you know, in, in, in the case of Robert F. Kennedy Jr., even though they, you know, they had this multi-pronged assault on him where they went after him sort of personally and, you know, tried to split up his family, uh, attacked him in, in just all kinds of ways and, and hit pieces and just, you know, 20 different places. Um, they listed him as part of the disinformation dozen, which was just sort of this, uh, this made up organization coming out with that list, um, where there was no kind of 
data given or no justifications for why people were on that list. They just sort of came up with this fake nonprofit that had a couple of people working at it. And then it was cited in, you know, tens of thousands of articles all around the country. And you're talking so, about like a fact check that they've created? No, it's, it, it's this list that they made, which was called the disinformation dozen. Oh, and it was just yes. sort of a fake list of people who they disagreed with, who they thought were going to be dangerous to their narrative. So, you know, there were no facts given, no specific allegations made. Uh, nobody had any sense what the organization was that had made this list, who was funding the people who made the list. So there was just none of that. It just was a, it was a claim. It was a statement that was just put out there, but it was so broadly disseminated that I think people thought that it, it really meant something. And that was just, you know, one of the many ways that, that they were doing it. Um, you know, when the real Anthony Fauci came out, you couldn't find it almost anywhere. So libraries all around the country wouldn't carry it. Bookstores wouldn't carry it. They treated it as if it was just dangerous. And that's what all of the articles that even mentioned it said. And, and mostly they just said that he personally was a dangerous person when they didn't, you know, sort of feel that they had to explain why. And so, you know, we believe we as the American people believe that we live in a democracy and people are, you know, uh, not guilty until you can actually prove that. And so what happened with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is that he's just been shut down, you know, as he said in that speech that, that you played a clip from, that he's been shut down for 18 years. And, you know, it's so clearly just because he's a threat to these greedy corporations that are just trying to suck as much money out of the American public as they can. And really ignoring safety signals in all kinds of areas um, and the government that's sort of protecting them. And with the agencies that are captured by these companies that are funded by them, that, you know, where the people who work at the government agencies know that they're going to get jobs later or in this sort of weird system that we have, they can actually make money while they're working for the government. So they can make extra money from patents or from other research that's separate from their salaries. So they have this inherent conflicts of interest. But, you know, it's, it's just a really scary time when there is this kind of merger of state and corporate power, like he said in the speech. And so we've been dealing with that as a publisher and fighting back in, in every way we can. And we were really successful in, in fighting back in the case of the real Anthony Fauci. Mm -hmm. That book wound up selling more than a million copies. But it, it, it did that without any help whatsoever from the media. And, you know, without a single review. I mean, I don't think there's a book in U.S. history that sold a million copies without a single review in any leading newspaper um, you know, the only TV show 
that let him on was Tucker Carlson. Um, and we've seen what's happened to him. Yeah, maybe that's part of the reason. Um, it's certainly his his bravery in you know letting people on and exploring stories that other places were too afraid to explore. That you know, I would guess that that's what lost him his job. Wow. Uh, Folks, we're on with Tony Lyons. He's the publisher of 2024 presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy's best-selling book and and various books, actually. And it's um, it's just amazing to me. Look, I've listened to um, radio. I've been a conservative all of my adult life. I used to listen to Robert F. Kennedy just to yell at the radio when he was on in New York on Air America. I didn't agree with anything he said, but I will always celebrate his, you know, right to say it. And that's what America's all about is people having these different ideas. And we probably happen to agree on a lot of his, his, um, positions on, on Fauci and on vaccines and all of that stuff. But it's just fascinating to me how we're in this new era where people don't like what you say, they will try to literally cancel you and erase you and destroy you. So Tony Lyons, just stick with us. I want to dig into that just a little bit more. Again, Tony Lyons, publisher of Skyhorse Publishing, and we're coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Thank you, Rich, and thank you for everything. I know you very well, and I have I listen, but I have a lot of people that listen, and they love your show, and I appreciate it very much. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, if you will have a question for our guest, Tony Lyons, president of Skyhorse Publishing, give us a call, 833-4-VALDEZ. Let's go to Frank in Akron, Ohio, WNIR. Frank, go right ahead. You're on with Tony Lyons and Rich Valdez. Hey, thanks for taking my call. It's an honor. Hey, I'm an old timer and a Vietnam vet, but uh, thanks for your thoughts. service. Okay, I hate to, I hate the deep. I hate. Thank you, and you have a blessed Memorial Day weekend. I hate yeah. the DNC with a passion, but in my estimation, and looking at the whole whole ball, ballpark, I think uh, uh, that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and DeSantos would make a wonderful team for the next presidency and vice president. All right, Frank, thank you. Tony Lyons, care to weigh in on that one? Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, I think that, you know, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has kind of become this folk hero that transcends party. And he said in his speech that it's really not about Democrats or Republicans. It's about the American people against this corrupt government and a very small number of billionaires who are just kind of destroying the middle class and and kind of going after all of us, going after our our health, going after our rights, our freedom of speech. So so I think that, you know, 
DeSantis has also done some some really great work and has been fighting for for free speech in yeah. you know many and you know has has done good work in Florida. So I think that you know for me personally uh, that would be interesting. I mean I have yeah. no idea whether either one of them would would want to do that. Um, and and just for mm-hmm. full disclosure, I'm I'm the co-founder of a of a political action uh, committee, um, a, a super PAC that is sort of uh, backing uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. for president. It's called AmericanValues2024.org. Look at that. Um, for anybody who I, thinks we don't bring uh, on the opposition, we sure do. And we have those conversations. Tony Lyons, in the minute or so that we have remaining, let everybody know how they can follow you and learn more about Skyhorse. Yeah, sure. So the company is skyhorsepublishing.com. My Instagram is uh, Tony Lyons is uncertain. Uh, and the reason for that is that I really believe in, in free speech and I, and I think that we need more debate in this country. So I think it's great that you bring on all sides to the show. And I, you know, I think that that's so critical that how can Mm -hmm. Americans really decide what they want if they don't honestly get the story from each of the people who are running for president or each of the people who have an idea about anything. Yeah. And you know what, you're, you're always welcome to come back and share your thoughts as is RFK Jr. Because I think I agree with you. We have to have that type of conversation. Uh, Tony Lyons, I want to thank you for coming on. And if I'm ever um, pitching books, I'm coming to you first. Thanks so much. (laughs) All right. Take care. Godspeed to you, sir. All right, folks, we are going to continue with our, let's see, can we? No, we can't. I see we have a call from my buddy Doc in Wilmington, Delaware, but we've got seconds to go before the break, so I I won't be able to get in there. But you know what? Let's, nah, the music already kicked in. Doc, sorry about that. We'll get to you shortly, though. Folks, we're going to talk about how Americans are eating themselves to death with uh, cardiologist Dr. David Wilde. That's going to be a really interesting conversation because people don't know how bad cardiovascular disease is. Anyway, we're going to discuss that and your calls, 833-482-5337, straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. Don't move a muscle. Welcome back. And uh, we're going to do a little bit of Ask the Doctor here, right? Our guest, Dr. David Wilde. He's a cardio specialist at Holy Name Medical Center in New Jersey. Dr. David Wilde, welcome, sir. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, You bet. So there's a couple of things we're going to talk about tonight, right? There was this piece in the Washington Post uh, how cardiovascular disease is poised to kill more older people. And I want to get to that. I also wanted to talk about uh, the correlation between these two things, how Americans are eating themselves to death and diabetes and obesity, two of the big uh, risk factors for heart disease. They're on the rise amongst young adults in the U.S., according to a new study of 13,000 people ages 20 to 44 
And I think that's interesting that, you know, 20 to 44 in my, most of my lifetime, and I'm 45, uh, you didn't really hear too much about heart disease in that age group because of obesity. At least I didn't. Um, I usually it was, you know, something that was hereditary. So I, I look at this and I think, man, this is a bad situation for Americans to be in. Let's talk about this. So, Doc, what's what's contributing to this? Is Are people hooked on fast food? Do we hate exercise? I mean, I'm overweight, but I... I I think it's because I just never really was very active. I tend to eat okay, but um, what's causing this obesity epidemic? So I think uh, I think it's a, a, a little bit of everything. Um, I think that in general, our diet in the United States has gotten worse and worse over the years. Um, there's a ton of fast food, and and everything is about supersizing. So everybody's eating these giant portions, not eating well. And on top of that, there's been such an emphasis on, on gaming and electronics and people, especially kids, are just moving away from, from being active. That's a much more sedentary lifestyle. And all those things together are increasing the uh, levels of obesity in this, in this country. So as a, as a population in general, we're just getting bigger and heavier and all that contributes to the heart disease in general. Now, in this, um, this study, which published in the Journal of uh, the American Medical Association, it, the results show a high and rising burden of most cardiovascular risk factors in U.S. adults, especially for black, Hispanic, and Mexican-Americans. And uh, is this, again, diet-related, or does this have to do with me being brown? Uh, it's, a, it's a combination of a bunch of factors. So uh, for me, I believe the biggest factor that contributes to heart disease is probably genetic in nature. Um, you know, there, there's so much we don't understand. There's so much we understand about heart disease, but the traditional risk factors like diabetes, high blood pressure, and high cholesterol only predict about half of your risk for for heart disease. The rest of it is genetic. So, genetics play a role um, in causing that plaque buildup, and a lot of our genetics are tied to our ethnic groups. Um, and for whatever the reason, um, blacks and Hispanics have a higher incidence of heart disease. I think part of it is also um, uh, certain psychosocial stressors in, in those in those um, ethnic groups, lifestyles. We all eat differently. We all exercise differently. There's also disparities in socioeconomic status that may contribute in certain regards. Um, and all those things together will increase the risk of um, heart disease in, in, um, in Hispanic and black communities. You know, I've, I've heard that for years. And, and I think, and again, I'm not challenging it, but I feel like the fact that most of my friends from other cultures don't eat a ton of fried food all the time. And they also don't eat massive amounts of pork <laughs> like right. we do right in a Puerto Rican house. And, and I think this is, um, I think that's part of your genetics, right? My dad ate roast pork and loved to eat the, the leathery toasty part of the, uh, the skin. And while you know, it's considered a delicacy for us, I realize that stuff will kill you. Right? So I tend to yeah, eat a lot less of it now. And I think that's, that's part of the genetic part of it is really diet related. Do you think I'm onto something? I, I think you're right. I mean, our genetics also kind of contribute to, to how we metabolize food um, and, you know, and how we, um, yeah, just in general, our metabolism, how, how fast we're, you know, how, how you burn the calories, what type of food you're going to, you're going to favor. But yeah, genetics play a big role in all of that. Now, before we get into the, the other topic, um, I want to continue to pull on this thread a little bit, but I also want the audience to understand a little bit about what you do, because I know you're with a, a group of cardiologists and you all have different uh, specialties and different approaches to the way you uh, practice your medicine. 
Tell us a little bit about your approach and, and exactly what you specialize in, Dr. Wild. Sure. So I, um, I'm an non-invasive cardiologist, and I, my area of focus is mostly on preventive cardiology and cardiac imaging. What so does that I, mean? So um, I focus mainly on trying to prevent heart disease in, in patients. Uh, I also treat patients after they've developed heart disease, but I like to focus on trying to pick up heart disease before it becomes an issue earlier on in the process, what I call early detection. Um, and part of that is focusing and using cardiac imaging like stress testing, cardiac CT, um, echocardiography, and, and those kind of tools. Sounds good. Um, I'm definitely coming in for one of those, and we're going to put it on social media <laughs> so you great. guys can see the results of that. Folks, I want Perfect. to uh, invite you to call if you have a question for Dr. Wild about um, anything um, you know related to heart disease and whatnot. He's a, a great cardiologist at Holy Name Medical Center in New Jersey, and we're going to continue our conversation with him straight ahead. The phone number, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ is the number. We're coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337, 833 valdez that's Valdez with an S. Welcome back. I'm looking at a piece in CNN. It says irregular menstrual cycles are linked with higher cardiovascular disease risks, according to a study. Uh, this is a couple of days ago. But I wanted to circle back with our guest, Dr. David Wild, uh, to discuss how cardiovascular disease is poised to kill more older people. The number one cause of death amongst those 65 and older uh, disproportionately affects black and Hispanic communities we talked about. Uh, let's talk about how how older people fit into this, Dr. Wild. So, I mean, in general, our our country is, is aging. The average age of Americans is increasing. Um, we have an aging population. And essentially, um, heart disease is is primarily a disease of, of elderly patients. So the older we get, the more heart disease we're going to have as, you know, as, um, as the population grows. Um, and it's something that we have to kind of stay ahead of. Um, this is why I think... Um, detecting at a much younger age and coming in earlier is the best way to kind of stay ahead of this. Let's talk about that. Let's take our time with it. How, how does one do that, right? So, and I'll use me because I only know me uh, as an example, but I'm 45. Um, I don't have heart disease. I don't, um, I, I, my dad had some heart issues. He had a pacemaker, um, but it was more for like, um, um, what's that thing called? Where you, irregular heartbeat type of thing. So uh, I, I don't know. What, what do I do to eliminate my risks? I've changed my diet drastically. I've lost a good amount of weight over the years. I think like maybe good. 10 years ago, I was 269 pounds. Now I'm 208. Um, still got a way to go. I'm trying to get to 180. So I realize weight plays uh, a role in this. But what else does one do besides you know eating better, eating more greens, trying to add some exercise into your life, and, and dropping weight? 
Right. So you're doing all the right things already, losing weight, eating a, a heart healthy diet, which is a well-balanced diet, portion control, exercising 30 minutes a day, five days a week. But besides that, there's, I, I think people should be coming in earlier to get checked out between 30 and 40. You have to make sure that your blood pressure is under control, get that checked regularly. You have to get your cholesterol start, you know, checked probably starting age 20 every year to make sure that's under control, getting those modifiable risk factors under control, like blood pressure, diabetes, cholesterol are going is, is a good start to preventing heart disease down the road. For me, in addition to that, if I saw a 35, 40 year old person for the first time and they really just want to stay ahead of their heart health, I would also recommend something called a calcium score or a cardiac CT. Both of those are cast scans of the heart. One is with contrast, one is without contrast. And the purpose is to really pick up um, plaque buildup in the heart. Because if you know earlier on that you have plaque buildup, that already increases your risk of having a heart attack in five or 10 years. So we would be much more aggressive than knowing that you have plaque buildup and you're at increased risk. Um, we'd be much more aggressive in managing your risk factors. So for example, if I knew you had plaque buildup there and your cholesterol was only borderline, if you have plaque buildup there, I'd probably be more aggressive in, in treating your cholesterol to a much lower level. And in doing so, you would significantly reduce the risk of forbid, having a heart attack in five or 10 years from now. Wow. Good to know. Actually, my last cholesterol test was high, but that had a lot to do with my diet. I was eating a ton of red meat and, and that's yeah. it. <laughs> that was right. literally all I ate for like months on end. Uh, and I enjoyed that and I lost weight, but then uh, they were like, all right, stop doing that. Switch to chicken and fish, uh, which <laughs> is interesting. Go. All right, folks, we're on with Dr. David Wild. He's uh, a cardiologist with the Holy Name Medical Center in New Jersey. And uh, Dr. Wild, so you're saying that people should be coming in between 30 and 45 uh, for for this um seat cardiac CT with contrast and without, so you can, I guess, um, juxtapose the two and, and contrast and compare to see if people have that plaque buildup. So I believe most Americans or most people in general should come in between 30 and 40. I'm not saying every patient needs to have a calcium score, but you definitely have to have some sort of screening, getting your blood pressure, getting cholesterol checked. I almost always, if somebody's just coming in, um, to look for, um, to assess their, their heart health, if they have risk factors for heart disease, diabetes, high cholesterol, obesity, if they had any of those risk factors or, or multiple of those risk factors, and, and I strongly believe that the way to go is to do a calcium score, which is that, that cardiac CT to, to look for the plaque buildup. I think if you have a lot of those risk factors, including a, a strong family history of heart disease at a young age, I would even favor coming in earlier. You, you probably wouldn't do the cardiac CT earlier than, than 30, 35, but by checking all those other things, making sure that your that your risk factors are under control, I would start that at an even younger age if you're at high risk. Now, let's talk about uh, high blood pressure and diabetes. You hear that a lot, and uh, I know that high blood pressure is one of those things. A lot of people don't know that they have it uh, unless they're checking right. for it, and some people it's hereditary, and others know. I've got a buddy who's always been pretty athletic, and he's always had high blood pressure, like since we were little kids. So uh, I know that's a thing, but. Um, What's your recommendation on that? Should people be checking their blood pressure on a regular basis or just, you know, when you go to the doctor? So I, I believe you should be checking it on a regular basis. Not, I wouldn't, I don't tell people to grab this. Something's crazy over it. But I think if you only rely on your blood pressure at a doctor's office, there's, you know, something called white coat hypertension, which means that, you know, your blood pressure, you're stressed out at the doctor's office. Yeah, the doctor freaks you out. Sure. Right. Exactly. We all do. Um, or whether it's just sitting in traffic or on, on the way there, something raises your blood pressure. And if you only rely on what it's like in a doctor's office, then you're going to be 
you know, too many times maybe falsely diagnosed with, with high blood pressure. So I think it's important to periodically check it elsewhere if you can get a blood pressure monitor at home or sometimes you can even check it at a pharmacy or supermarket, but you should periodically check it just to make sure it's well controlled. I find that a lot of patients um, feel that if they're feeling okay, then there's no way that their blood pressure is high and then it's very hard to convince them that they should be, that they should be treated for it. But it's important to remember that, that high blood pressure is one of the biggest issues in terms of heart disease in this country. And that's why we call it the silent killer. People feel totally fine even when their blood pressure is 160 or 170, and it's slowly doing the damage, you know, without you even realizing it. Wow. All right, folks, that's uh, Dr. David Wild. We're going to continue with him. I want to get your take on this article I was looking at, the irregular menstrual cycles linked with higher cardiovascular disease risks, according to this study and uh, how it's affecting women. If you have a question for Dr. Wild, you got only a few more minutes to get it in. 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, folks, so we're back with Dr. David Wild. He's a cardiologist with Holy Name Medical Center in New Jersey. And CNN Health is reporting that irregular menstrual cycles linked with higher cardiovascular disease risks are um, on the rise. And this is not good. Let's see what, what some of the particulars here are. Cycles that are shorter than normal, less than 21 days and longer than normal, uh, at more than 35 days were associated with a higher risk of cardiovascular disease and atrial fibrillation. That stuff will kill you. And, or irregular heartbeats, according to the study published Wednesday in the Journal of American Heart, uh, of the American Heart Association. Dr. Wild, uh, let's talk about this. Is this something that affects women uh, overall, like heart disease? Does it affect women more than men or vice versa? So it's actually pretty equal in terms of how it affects men and women um, in terms of numbers, but women tend to do worse in certain types of heart disease, especially heart attacks. And that may be because women are so, are, are so used to taking care of everybody else and not enough people are taking care of them that they tend to present later. And if you present later with heart disease, you end up not doing as well. So a lot of times their, their outcomes are not as good as, as with men. Yeah. Now let's let's talk about this. Why why are menstrual cycles um, uh, a high risk factor for cardiovascular disease? So we don't know the exact reason. What we do know from from the recent data is, if you have an irregular menstrual cycle, you may you might be at increased risk for for heart disease. Now they controlled for other things like diabetes and other risk factors, and none of those seem to really predict why that's the case. A lot of the researchers predict, suspect that it may be related to underlying stress levels. You know, when, when women are stressed for whatever the reason, whether it's emotional, physical, that throws off your cycle. And stress, we do know from a lot of studies, does contribute to heart disease. And then there's another theory that, um, that abnormalities of hormone levels can also contribute to the irregularity. And we do know that hormone levels in women, if they're off, can also increase the risk of heart disease. The most important takeaway point is that if you have irregular menstrual cycles, you really should come in and get your heart checked out to make sure that everything's okay and, and you know, really try to detect that at an early phase. Now, in terms of uh, what comes first, the chicken or the egg, with these hormone issues, 
that you're talking about. Like, uh, I guess this is women with either high estrogen or low estrogen. Uh, how does that end up um, uh, affecting the outcome? Um, well, we do know that a lot of the the female hormones are, are typically more protective, and that's why women initially have have um, lower rates or of, of heart disease. But then later on in life, when when the, when the female hormones are are waning during during menopause and they have higher levels of testosterone, then that's when their their levels catch up and they start having higher risk of, of heart disease, similar similar to men. So, um, All right. yeah. No. Yeah, I just wanted to quickly, before we run out of time, Carl is in Atlantic City, New Jersey on WOND, and he has a question for Dr. David Wild. Carl, go right ahead. Hey, Doc, how you doing? Uh, real Thanks. quick, I've got uh, type type 2 diabetes. Uh, I've had, I got two ulcers on each foot on the bottom of my feet that have been over a year trying to get healed with the podiatrist or wound care center. But, um, and I've got a couple of blockages below the knees. You know how it is. They branch off into three arteries below the knees. I've had about a dozen angioplasts, but, uh, they can never get the arteries completely open. Um, I've heard of a, of a type of a diamond tipped catheter that can, they say it can actually get through this, uh, blockage. I've got them like 16 inches long. Uh, you know, but basically bad food choices uh, over the years, probably if, you know, and lack of, uh, exercise, whatever. All right, Carl, let's uh, give Dr. Wild a chance to respond before we run out of time. Doc, what say you? Yeah, I mean, a diamantive catheter is, is one approach. Um, the problem with, you know, when we have diabetes, the problem isn't always those larger vessels. A lot of times it's, just, it's the smaller vessels that, that branch off, you know, off those larger vessels. So, so no matter how many times they do angioplasty, it may not always help. Um, what's been pretty well proven is, is blood thinners. I'm not sure if you're on, you know, aspirin, plavix, those type of blood thinners. Sometimes the newer blood thinners like Xarelto have, have been proven in, in those situations to really help um, the circulation in those smaller vessels. And then very importantly, exercise, cardiac rehab, things like that can really help the blood flow in, in very difficult cases. Dr. David Wild, we're just about out of time. Let everybody know how they can uh, follow up with you and uh, keep in touch with everything you're doing. Sounds good. Yes, definitely um, feel free to come on in and check out our website. And I'm available for, for any questions and, and evaluations. Sure. What's the website and the uh, Instagram handle? Uh, so the best website is www.csonj.com. And my personal Instagram handle is David Wild and is at David Wild MD. All right. Well, there you have it, folks, Dr. David Wild. And straight ahead, our Memorial Day special presentation. This is America at Night. With Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. And we're having a discussion on the military and the importance of supporting our military in the area of uh, mental health and other areas. And obviously, um, there there are some out there that are really familiar with these issues. Uh, you may know our next guest from his roles in movies like Apollo 13, The Green Mile, CSI New York, or his, I'm going to say one of the biggest roles because it was such a big film, 
and has spanned so many generations of playing Lieutenant Dan in the movie Forrest Gump. Uh, but actor Gary Sinise has really um, been changed by that role. And uh, he, it was inspiring for him so much so that he started an organization, the Gary Sinise Foundation. And uh, this year, he's being honored to serve as the honorary grand marshal for the National Memorial Day Parade in Washington, D.C. Gary Sinise, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Rich. You bet. Um, you know, we were just talking about how, how important mental health are, really all veteran services, but mental health comes to mind because of this tragedy that we saw coming out of Texas. And, and, and I'm thinking, you know, you know better than most what, what areas uh, of support are available for veterans and what areas lack. And uh, in your estimation, would, do you feel like there's enough support for veterans in the area of mental health? Uh, I don't think there's ever enough that we can do for our veterans. There's so many veterans uh, struggling uh, silently out there. Uh, and you never know because uh, so many of them just keep it to themselves and they never re- reveal what they're going through. And we're very proactive at the Gary Sinise Foundation and trying to reach out to people to make sure that they know that there are services that we provide and that there are other services uh, that other organizations that I've supported over the years provide. Uh, we have to be proactive. It's a it's a terrible epidemic, really, because, again, uh, you can be going along just fine and think that everything's fine with your body, and next thing you know, uh, you find out something tragic has happened. And that's, that's very distressing. I, I recently had a, an, another buddy of mine take his own life, and, um, and oh, nobody man. really saw it coming. Um, uh, so it can, it, it can be a silent killer, and uh, we want all our veterans out there to know that there are multiple services that are provided for them, not just at my foundation, but there, there's, there's so many avenues that they can turn, and so many of them don't seek that kind of attention. They don't seek that kind of help. They don't know it exists right. in, in, in so many ways. But, but there are services and support systems out there for you. And we, we don't want anyone to struggle in silence. We want them to, to reach out. And really, I think, I think one of the great, greatest things or one of, one of the things that's, that's most definitely needed is for the military members, the brothers and sisters in arms, to take responsibility for their, their fellow warriors and to always you know, be, be the buddy system out there because right. the government can't do it. The nonprofits can't always do it, and I really think the biggest ingredient in saving someone's life or getting someone help is people that you are close to and your family members and your, your, again, your, your fellow uh, service members, they need to always be checking on each other to make sure everybody's okay. Folks, we're on with Gary Sinise. Um, You've known as, as an actor and as an advocate for veterans issues and founder of the Gary Sinise Foundation. Gary Sinise, what is uh, or what are some of the areas that the Gary Sinise Foundation um, does help? And, you know, some of the things that you've been doing, I know you've been doing this for a long time 
and you're involved in a lot of initiatives outside of your foundation. Uh, that's obviously why you've been honored as Grand Marshal of the National Memorial Day Parade this year. Uh, but tell us, uh, you know, some of the, the work that you've, you're doing now. Oh, gosh, at, at the Gary Sinise Foundation, we, we have so many different services that we provide. And, you know, <clears throat> I'll tell you why we're so broad in our mission is because prior to starting my foundation, I was just pitching in wherever I could to help multiple nonprofits that are in the military and first responder support space. And they were doing a variety of things. And I saw a variety of needs out there. And then when I started my foundation, uh, I wanted to just continue doing that, but within, you know, uh, one single organization. Well, I still support other nonprofits and help them raise awareness and, and funding and whatnot. Uh, I wanted to and to kind of bring everything under one umbrella and uh, having been involved with so many nonprofits in different spaces, I just said, well, we're going to do a lot of different things at the Gary Sinise Foundation. We have mental wellness programs. We support other organizations that are really working hard uh, to provide uh, mental health services. We have Gold Star uh, family support. Uh, we build homes for our wounded service members. Uh, I've continued to entertain troops on military bases all over the country. And in the last 19, 20 years or so, uh, have played just hundreds and hundreds of concerts to raise spirits and boost morale. And, you know, quite often we'll go to a base uh, right here in the States and you've got you know, uh, a, a huge number of service members that are deployed from those bases, but their families are still there on the bases enduring these long deployments. And we roll in and we lift the spirits of the children and, and the spouses and try to do what we can to make sure that they know they're appreciated. So we uh, we want all our service members to know that that they're not forgotten, no matter if they're on the front page or not. Uh, they're always in our hearts, and we and we want to take care of them. I have a lot of Vietnam veterans, uh, friends, and family members. I go back to the Vietnam days uh, and remember all too well what it was like when they didn't get the services and support that they needed and how difficult it was for them to go off to war and then come home and feel abandoned by the nation. And we don't want that to ever happen again. That's why my foundation kind of grew out of a lot of different things. And uh, I'm, I'm, we're almost uh, at the end of our 12th year. We're going into our 13th year. Wow. Well, let me just remind everybody who we're on with. We're on with uh, Gary Sinise. You guys know Gary Sinise. He's all over the place uh, in Hollywood and television, Apollo 13, The Green Mile, CBS's CSI New York, and, of course, Lieutenant Dan. And uh, Gary Sinise is with us. Where, uh, he's telling us uh, about the work of the foundation and the importance of mental health and services with the military veterans community. Uh, but he's also been um, selected as Honorary Grand Marshal for the National Memorial Day Parade in Washington, D.C. this year. And with that comes a concert. So we're going to learn about the concert straight ahead. I want him to fill you in on that stuff. Plus, I really want to get uh, an idea from him on what it was like playing Lieutenant Dan and how that's really changed his career in many ways, where he's an advocate and an actor at the same time. I think that's a fascinating story in and of itself. Don't go anywhere straight ahead. We're coming back with 
actor and advocate Gary Sinise. Don't go anywhere. Plus your calls, 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-482-5337. Don't move a muscle. We'll be right back. America, welcome back. Uh, we're on with Gary Sinise, uh, the actor and advocate for veterans' issues. And Gary Sinise, in addition to being named the Grand Marshal, uh, the honorary Grand Marshal of this year's Memorial Day Parade, and and it's going to be a big one. Um, I see a lot, uh, five thousand people uh, marching. But you're also um, involved in a concert that's going to be taking place on May 26. Tell us all about it. <laughs> Oh yeah, well thanks, Rich. Um, we, uh, my foundation, is uh, we're we're doing so much all over the country. We, but uh, this is the 50th anniversary year of the end of combat operations in Vietnam, and the return of the POWs that happened uh, in February and March of 1973. So this is the 50th anniversary. There's. Uh, commemorative um, events going on this coming weekend. But uh, as I'm coming to uh, Washington, D.C. for the National Memorial Day Parade and the National Memorial Day concert at the Capitol, I wanted to come in a few days early to do a special Vietnam uh, welcome home salute to service for our Vietnam veterans. So my foundation has uh, gotten a Constitution Hall, and uh, on May 26th, uh, doors open at 5 p.m. at Constitution Hall in Washington, D.C., and we want as many Vietnam veterans to come to that uh, concert. It's a salute and celebration of them. Again, like I said, I have Vietnam veterans in my own family. I played a Vietnam veteran at Forrest Gump. I have great relationships with many Vietnam veterans. I've been involved with the Disabled American Veterans Organization for many, many years. Uh, and so many of their members are Vietnam veterans. Um, we want uh, we want to salute them. And that's what this May 26th concert is all about. You can go to GarySiniseFoundation.org. And right there on the homepage, and I'm talking to our Vietnam veterans out there, if you're going to be in the D.C. area, please come to the concert. Go to GarySiniseFoundation.org and look us up there. You'll see right there on the homepage, Welcome Home Celebration for Vietnam Veterans. Click on that, and it'll tell you how to get seats and all of that. Um, and then right after that, there's a candlelight vigil at the, at the wall. Um, the the Vietnam Memorial there. Yeah. So people will be leaving the concert and heading over to the wall right after that. Now, Gary Sinise, uh, you mentioned right now uh, playing uh, Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump and this 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 role that that you know changed your life in many ways. But t- tell us how it actually happened uh, because I, I find it fascinating. Right, you, you've had this great career as an actor, a working actor, and 
And you'd think that's interesting enough, right? <laughs> There's a lot that goes on when you get to play these different roles. Uh, but yet you, you have this one role that really changes you. Walk us through it. Well, it, it, you know, I hadn't done that many movies, Rich, um, uh, up until that point. I'd done a, a Mice and Men was a movie that I did with John Malkovich. I produced it and directed it and was in it. Uh, did a couple other movies, but not that many. And uh, in 1993, I had the opportunity to audition for Forrest Gump. And like I said, uh, you know, with Vietnam veterans and my families and having gotten involved with supporting Vietnam veterans groups in the Chicago area back in the 80s, uh, the when the opportunity came along to audition, I very much wanted to do it. And I was lucky to get the part. And it was a, you know, obviously it was career changer because I hadn't done that many movies before. Uh, and it was a, you know, big, big film that year. We won the Oscar and it was, you know, the, I think one of the one, if, if not the biggest film of the year. So when you're, when you kind of come out of nowhere and you're in the biggest film of the year and you have a good part, uh, it can change the career. And after that, I, uh, I did get offered additional roles and I did Apollo 13 after that and did ransom after that. And with Mel Gibson and got to play Harry Truman and uh, just did a lot of good things after Forrest Gump. So it was a career changing role, but it was also, a role that brought me to the Disabled American Veterans Organization back in 1994, and I started supporting them uh, after they invited me to their national convention that year, and they gave me an award for playing a disabled veteran. And I've been involved with them now for nearly 30 years uh, supporting them. So I, I, I really credit, you know, getting involved with the DAV with, you know, the origins of my work with our wounded and how that evolved mm -hmm. over the years to a full-time mission. And what, uh, I guess, how do you see the role of, um, you know, uh, your outlook on things, whether that's culturally, politically, a conservative view, uh, what, what type of role has that had in, in the way you've chosen to guide your career? Cause I know being, a conservative being a patriotic, uh, you don't see every actor out there doing this type of work. And I feel like in Hollywood, it, it could be more of a hindrance than a benefit. You know, I'm, I made my first trip to Iraq to support the troops and to visit them in uh, 20 years ago. It's it'll be 20 years in June since my first trip to Iraq. And that was, that was, that was galvanizing. I mean, really, it uh, when I went over there, and and this was uh, about two months after the initial invasion, and I remember when the statue of Saddam Hussein was kind of pulled down in the in the square in Baghdad, and that was in April of 2003, and I, I was in Iraq two months later. And visiting our troops, and then I went back again six months later uh, in November. And in between there, I went to Italy to visit our troops, and I went to Germany to visit our troops, and I went to Walter Reed, and I I went to Sports Stewart and San Diego, and I was I was just all over the place. I just wanted to be a part of supporting the men and women who were 
kind of reacting uh, to what had happened on September 11th, in a way. And uh, that was that was galvanizing again, and it just made me want to do more of it. And um, I became, you know, very, very active in supporting our troops and supporting nonprofits that were supporting our troops. And start, I started a program called Operation Iraqi Children, where we were sending school supplies hundreds of thousands of school supply kits over a nine-year period to our troops in Iraq, Afghanistan, all over the world, so that they could take those supplies out and give them to the children and the villages that they were, you know, passing through. And it was a good hearts and minds uh, effort, I thought, uh, you know, much like our GIs walking through bombed out Germany, uh, handing out chocolate and pencils to the kids. We were, we were providing our troops with school supplies so that they could extend their hand of friendship. And all those efforts just led to a a broader effort. And, you know, I got, I got pretty well known for, for being a guy who, you know, goes out there and, and, and supports the men and women who are defending us. And, all of that manifested itself into the creation of my own foundation. And, you know, I, I think, uh, I think I've, I've tried to do my best there and let the chips fall. Good for you for putting the mission first. I know a lot of people uh, out of Hollywood, they, they take a, an approach where, you know, it's pro America, conservative, whatever, you, what have you. And the next thing you know, they, they feel like they're getting blacklisted and uh, it takes a lot of courage. So I appreciate what you're doing for for all of our veterans, men and women out there. Gary Sinise, let everybody know again where they can get the tickets for the concert and support the great work you're doing. Yes, if you're if you're going to uh, D.C. Uh, for Memorial Week on May 26th at Constitution Hall, uh, we're going to have a Lieutenant Dan Band concert and uh We're also going to have Medal of Honor recipient Sammy Davis, who will be speaking to the crowd. Joe Montaigne will be our master of ceremonies that night. Uh, One of the POWs, Lee Ellis, will be speaking. Uh, Steve Amerson will be singing. And then my Lieutenant Dan Band will be rocking out everybody. You can go to GarySiniseFoundation.org. And right there on the homepage, you'll see the celebration for Vietnam veterans on May 26th. Just click on that and it'll show you how to, how to get seats. It's a free concert. So uh, we hope to fill it up and we hope a lot of people come and uh, again, all free uh, supported by the Gary Sinise foundation. And uh, of course our generous donors who donate to the Gary Sinise foundation. Well, it sounds like a great time celebrating America and America's veterans, America's fallen, and honoring that legacy. Uh, check it out, folks, GarySiniseFoundation.org. GarySiniseFoundation.org is the website. Gary Sinise, I want to thank you for what you're doing. Godspeed to you, and thanks for being here and staying up late with us. Thanks so much for having me, Rich. You bet. Take care, and we'll do it again soon. Folks, straight ahead, we're going to continue our discussion and analysis on All the breaking news related to the shooting in Texas over the weekend. There's new information out. Is it real? Is it fake? We're going to get to the bottom of it right here. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. 
John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra five to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.